Okay, good morning, good morning. Let us pray. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong and nothing is holy, multiply your mercy on us, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <clears> hey, <throat> okay, the verse of the week from the Congregation at Prayer, James 4.4. 4. Let's speak this together. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, firstly, you'll notice one really important thing, and that is how inclusive the Bible is. Look at that, not just adulterers, but adulteresses as well, and who says the Bible doesn't love women? So, why? <clears throat> Why does James, in writing this epistle, this is one of the so-called Catholic epistles, with a little c, because it's not written to a specific congregation or to a specific individual, but written to the whole church at large. So why, in writing to the whole church, does he call you adulterers and adulteresses? Okay, but that's like using the word in the definition of the word. Why, though? Why is it that you are? But what does it mean? Why doesn't he call you sinners? Why does he call you adulterers? Because we're not true to God. This is the thing. Yes, you are sinners, and in being a sinner, you are an adulterer. But why? Because everything with God is relational. Why does God send his son to die? Think of John 3.16. What's the motivation? He loves. So... Uh, why does he follow Israel? Why does he stay true to Israel in the wilderness, even though Israel keeps going away from him? Because he loves. So God is the icon of what true love is to be, even in the face of unfaithfulness, and that's what it is. Anytime that you sin, anytime you rebel against God, anytime you go after another God, an idol, it is actually, relationally speaking, an act of idolatry. So, when you are called adulterers and adulteresses, what this says is, hey, all of you who are going after others, what are the others that you go after? Well, think about the context of the verse. Friendship with the world. So what is the context here? What are your lovers apart from Christ? Money. Sure. Think about the sermon from last week. Remember uh, the, the excuses that the, that the folks give for, oh, well, I know I was invited and I know I said I would go, but I got, a, I got married. That's the one I think is the, the funniest. Oh, I got married and uh, I can't come now because I have a wife. What? I don't think it works like that, but okay. So the world, and the question was, what is your spouse? 
And I intentionally elaborated on that in the sermon. What does it mean for something to be your spouse? Again, it's this language of relation. For something to be your spouse means that you are giving yourself over to that person or to that thing. So what is it that you are giving yourself over to? Your love of money, your love of possessions, any kind of treasure of this world, even though we're not supposed to store them up because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, anything. And you'll see in a minute why that matters. So you're an adulterer and you're, you're adulterers and adulteresses because when you sin, you are going after others. You're seeking to give yourself to another husband instead of the one you already have, which also gets down to the Ten Commandments, specifically uh, the Seventh Commandment, the Ninth Commandment, and the Tenth Commandment, which ultimately deal with your own contentedness uh, with what the Lord has provided. Uh, and relationally speaking, not everybody is always going to be happy within their marriage, but they are to be content within their marriage, and especially on the grand scheme, in your union with Christ, you are to remain content within that union, regardless of what you think is good or bad, because there is a better good and a, and a greater evil than what you think in your own little head. So do you not know, and this, of course, if you went through catechumenate, do you not know, St. Paul uses this phrase a lot too, which is really, uh, it's a rhetorical phrase because what he's saying is, everybody knows. Everybody knows that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the last thing to see. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself. Where's the working of God there? It's absent. Yes, why? Is it God who makes you an enemy? No, you make yourself an enemy. You are the one that hardens yourself to the Lord. You are the one, you are Juliet, while Romeo is downstairs in your court playing you a lovely serenade, you are the Juliet who goes to the window and goes, oh, this guy again, and closes the windows. Well, Romeo's song was nice. You are the one that decided you didn't want it and you closed the window to the balcony and closed the drapes so you couldn't see him or hear him. That's making yourself an enemy of Romeo. And in this case, your Romeo is the Lord. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world, that's an act of the will. Where do you see that first? Somebody who wants to be a friend of the world. There's a really good example of this. Someone who wants to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God. Are we talking something in the news currently? Not in the news, in, the, in scripture. Sorry, I guess I should have... Come on, read my mind better, folks. Uh, yeah, in Scripture, sorry. An example in Scripture of somebody who wanted to be friends with the world and became, made himself an enemy of God. Adam. There you have it. Adam wants to be a friend of the world. You know, God says that this is not good, but I see that it is. Mm, I am a friend of the world now. I want what the world gives me. God gives me something else. But 
It's like when you're a kid and you go, I wish I had Jimmy's parents instead of my parents because they let me stay up late and he has better toys than I do. Uh, and, and they let me watch movies my parents don't let me watch. I wish that that was my dad and that was my mom instead of the one I have. I was going to say Judas. Judas? Well, Judas is another example. There's tons of examples in Scripture. Uh, the most prominent is Adam because he's the first and everything flows out of Adam makes himself. What did God do to make Adam an enemy? Nothing. He didn't do anything. Adam did it. Made himself an enemy of God. Does that mean God does not love? No, that's the important thing. God does not wish you to be an enemy, and God will continue to try and make you not be his enemy. And if you keep closing the balcony doors and closing the drapes, eventually, as C.S. Lewis says, on the last day, there will only be two kinds of people, those uh, who say to the Lord, thy will be done, and those to whom the Lord says, thy will be done. If you really don't want any part of Jesus and you, want, and you make yourself an enemy of him, then on the last day, he will give you exactly what you want. You want to be left alone? Okay. You want to be my enemy? Okay. But I guarantee you, I promise you to high heaven, you don't know what that means. I want it. I want it. That's what I want. Okay. Closed is the door and dark is the outside. All right, let's speak this again. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yes, good. Uh, what does God's word say of citizens? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Uh, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, now only because of possible punishment, why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Sorry, that's supposed to be not. Not only because of possible punishment. That was my fault. Uh, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Easy. Easiest thing in the world to do. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. <gasps> oh, no. But what is Caesar's? The question isn't how is a Christian supposed to behave. The question is how do I know how I'm supposed to behave? What constitutes the things that are Caesar's and what constitutes the things that are God? We, I talked about this just a little bit last week in Bible class. Um, but I don't want you to think about last week at all. I want you to think about this differently. Think about the context in which this verse is given, these words of Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What is the context of that, those words? What is the event? What's going on? About, <laughs> yes, someone was asking Jesus about something. 
that is the context. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus and said, Oh, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What's the damned if you do, damned if you don't of that question? I want you to understand why this is a big deal. They were testing his loyalty to Caesar. So if he says, no, it is not lawful for you to pay taxes to Caesar, then what can they do? Well, they can, they can arrest him because he is being a rabble-rouser. He's going against the Roman state. He's going against the authorities. But, and that's what the people want. That's what they want Jesus to say. But if he says, yes, it is lawful to give taxes to Caesar, then what happens? Pardon me? The, the Pharisees have it. Not the Pharisees, the people. All of the people who follow him, the crowds of people, the throngs, they all want the Romans gone. And if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, then they go, hey, wait a minute, who is this guy? So that's, that's the thing. You're either going to be hated by the crowd who follows you, or you're going to be hated by the disciple, or by the Romans. And we don't really care which, because we want the people to stop following you. And either way, this is the way to do it. That's the question. And then what does Jesus do? He doesn't just give this question. Do you remember what he does? He asks for a coin. He asks for a coin, and he says... Yes and no. What he literally says is, whose image and likeness is this? And of course, it's, yeah, like if I took out a quarter and I said to you, whose image and likeness is on this quarter? You say, yeah, Washington. It's the same thing. So, who does the quarter belong to? Washington. Or you can say, Uncle Sam. Because Uncle Sam represents all of Washington. So whoever's, on, whoever's image and likeness is on your currency, it is the governing authority that represents those individuals that holds the power of the individuals. So this, th why this is so important for you is because in determining what is Caesar's and what is God's, you have to ask this question. Whose image and likeness? It's easy with money because money have... Money has a literal image and likeness on it. But what about your guns? About what? What about your guns? Poke, 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 poke. <laughs> and trust me, this hurts me just as much as it hurts you. What about, what? <laughs> you know, see, uh, Render to Caesar all of the things that are made in the image and likeness of Caesar, which you can go even further and say all things that are made in the image and likeness of man. Goes to man. What are the things that are made in the image and likeness of God? You. Okay, yeah. You. You. Yeah. Just, okay, just to be clear, <laughs> God, God makes man in his image and likeness, so that's you. What else is in the image and likeness of God? Nothing. Nothing. Nobody. 
Ain't nothing, ain't nothing, ain't nobody. Only you are made in the image and likeness of God. Which means that when you render to God what is God's, what, is, what are you rendering? Yourself. Which, of course, includes things like going to church, gathering, receiving the sacrament, all of those kinds of things. Which is why when governments tried to shut the churches down, the faithful churches said, you don't get to shut us down. Uh, no law can tell us that we can't render to God what is God's because this is who we are and we render him due thanks and praise and we gather together. So you render to God what is God's. There are very few things that the authorities uh, cannot take away from you. But the things that they can't take away from you are the most important things anyway. Think of the fourth stanza of A Mighty Fortress. Yeah, they can take your goods, they can take your fame, your fortune, your life, your wife, your kids, your guns, your cows, your land, uh, your farm. They can take everything from you if they really want to. And what have you lost? Nothing. Nothing. Because none of that really mattered anyway. You see? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There are more important things. If Caesar wants them, then give them to Caesar. But you can't give yourself to Caesar because you are not his. He cannot ask for you. So, um, yeah, kids, you can go downstairs. That's really what I wanted to say. One addition that I might make to this other passage from Romans, um, submitting to the authorities. Part of submitting to authorities... So, so submitting to authorities doesn't only mean that... DC says jump and you say, how high, sir? Submitting to the authorities also means that you pray for them. And there's, there's many reasons for that. One, do you live in this country? Yeah. Are they your authorities? Yes, so why would you not pray for them? Because if something bad happens to the authorities, then who's affected by it? Duh, you. So saying, I hate this president and I'm not gonna pray for him. Guess who that's hurting? Uh, you. I know a few pastors who said, this current president didn't win the election and I only pray for, past or for presidents that actually won an election. And, and then you have to say, is that your job? Is it, or is it your job to pray for all who are in authority over you? How many, let's, let's, let's ask this question. Let's play a game. How many monarchs and you can think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail here. How many monarchs were duly elected representatives of the people, for one? And how many monarchs through history were good monarchs? And thirdly, how many monarchs through history uh, received the throne in a way that was completely morally pure, with no political intrigue, backbiting, or backstabbing behind the scenes. And go. Remember when God said, you don't want a king, Yeah, that's right. I love, I love that. The Israelites say, well, we want a king, we want a king. And, and, and God says, why do you want a king? And they say, because everyone else has one and we don't. We want to be like them. And he said, I specifically told you you're not supposed to be, you're supposed to be different, but we don't want to be. Said, okay, you can have a king if you really want, but I tell you what, you're not going to like it. We don't care. We are going to like it. You'll see. 
we don't like having a king anymore. <laughs> well, you asked for it. Yeah, that's how it goes. I love it. It's great. And it's, it's great, not because you look at the Israelites and go, you dumb sacks. What's the matter with you? Aren't we so glad we're better than those Israelites? Oh, boy. It's funny because you look at us and we just do the same thing. And it's even more funny because we make fun of the Israelites and then go and do exactly the same thing that they do. Um, yes, so the Lord says, yeah, king's not really going to be good for you. The point is, for all of those monarchs, for all of those dictators, for all of those presidents, does the church ever stop praying? I mean, she better not. Because with some very immortal words of wisdom that I once received, if the church doesn't pray, who will? If the church isn't praying for the president, whether or not he is somebody that you like, whether or not his policies are things that are good for you, whether or not he was duly and justly elected, who will? Well, nobody will. The church has a duty. And the duty of the church in following the image and likeness of her Lord is much more important than any personal opinions or vendettas. So whether you think a war is a just war, the church still prays for an end to all war. Whether you think that a president is a good president or a bad president, or a king is a good king or a bad king, the church still prays for the governing officials. Whether you agree with Supreme Court decisions or not, the church still prays for all of the justices on the Supreme Court and everyone else who serves to make, administer, and uphold law and order in the country. And all, you know, all over the world, the church prays for this. So uh, don't just submit to your rulers by doing what they say. That's kind of the bare minimum. It's like when your mom says, clean your room, and you go, mm, okay. and you pick up all the stuff on the floor, but the blinds are still a mess, and your bed's still unmade, and you know, there's still stuff under your bed because you didn't actually clean out under your bed, and, and there's clumps of stuff because you didn't vacuum. You know, did you really clean your room? I picked up all the stuff. That's what she really wanted, wasn't it? But did you really do it? Let me tell you from experience, you didn't. <laughs> Okay? You didn't. So don't, don't do just the bare minimum. And this is, all, this is all Ten Commandments stuff, people. This is all Ten Commandments stuff. Be, because if you think that doing the bare minimum is, is the required amount of effort, then you are a Pharisee. Because being free in the gospel doesn't only mean that you're free from the law's condemnation. It means that you're free from the law's restriction. Here's a really good example. What is the... What is the restriction about tithing in the Old Testament, in the law? Well, you had to give a tenth, but the tenth you gave had to be perfect. Okay, sure. You had to give a, a tenth. I mean, that's tithe literally means a tenth. You had to give your tenth. And how much did everybody give? A tenth. Does Jesus nullify the tithe. Doesn't he do away with the law? He fulfills the law. Well, what does that mean? What about tithing? Because we can eat shellfish now, right? What about tithing? We can eat pork now. What about tithing? You're not constrained by the law. <gasps> you go yes! 
Exactly. Now you're not, you're not constrained by the law. How much did they give before? Well, 10%. Why? Because 10% is what we have to give, so we will give 10%. And only 10% because the Lord only said 10%. So the law binds you morally, and it binds your actions. Because you can only do so much because you have to fit it within the law. Whoa, 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 box. Well, Jesus comes and Jesus opens the box. The box is still there, but you can put more in it now. You can pull more out of it now. It's like a Mary Poppins box. Look at that. Stuff keeps coming out of it. So the law being fulfilled does not mean that the law doesn't exist. So is a good Jew after Christ still supposed to tithe? Absolutely. Is an early Christian still supposed to tithe? Yes. Is the modern church still supposed to tithe? Yes. But what's different now? And think, you can think of the book of Acts. What's different now in the fulfillment of the law? Yes, good, you're, you're on the right track. You give by faith now. Your motivation is not fear of wrath. Your motivation is love of your Lord. Mm -hmm. So you're giving by faith out of love, and that means that you are free to give as much as you want. You see that? Where once it was 10%, that's what you do. Now it's, well, I, can, I could give 10%, or I could give 20, or I could give 30, or I could give 50, or I could even give 100. And I love the people that say, don't do that's between me and God. You know, offerings between me and God. And you say, oh, I never said it wasn't. Anywhere from 10 to 100% is absolutely between you and God. Anything up to 10%, though, you know, because the Lord said you should do that. I just love that. What, what, 10, 100%? And you say, yes, 100%. Look at the early church in Acts. They sold everything and gave all they had to the apostles for the growing church. And guess what they lacked? What did they lack? <laughs> Common sense. <laughs> what did they lack? <sighs> nothing. They lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. So all of this is to say, uh, the bare minimum, especially as it pertains to submitting to your governing authorities, is not enough, really. Because the, the spirit of the law isn't the spirit of the law is this is the attitude I want you to have for these people. This is why I want you to have this attitude. Do whatever you want with them as long as you're doing it within this, the, the, the context of this attitude. And absolutely pray for them. So yeah, obey them, do what they say, follow the laws, pay your taxes, blah, 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 all that boring stuff. And then also pray for them. Okay, all right, questions about that. Okay, and just in case you're thinking about asking them, today is not the day to talk about all of, again, like last week, today is not the day to talk about the minutia of when you obey and when you don't obey. We could, we could spend days and days and weeks and weeks talking about that. All of this is just the general application. So it's not like we're going to sit here and debate whether Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right in planning to assassinate Hitler or not. Because there are people on both sides of that that make very good and very compelling arguments. The purpose is not to throw ourselves into a basket like that. The purpose is just to state the general. Now, it's a hymn Sunday today. If you didn't get a handout, there's one at the back. It looks like this. It's text. No pictures today, sorry. There just wasn't room. 
Um, but as we typically would do, <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit about the gospel for today, Luke 15, which traditionally in the church uh, was not limited only to the parable, excuse me, the parable of the prodigal son, which is the last third of that gospel, excuse me, that gospel chapter. Um, it was read in its entirety, which is what we do here. Um, there's a reason for that, which you'll hear in the sermon, but the point is that the parable of the uh, lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son really all tie together, and you can't understand the prodigal son unless you also have the context of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But I want to look at a couple pieces of art, vastly different in style. You probably recognize this one. This is the one that I always use in talking about the prodigal son. This is by Rembrandt. Uh, and this is, so the pastor who introduced me to using this Rembrandt, uh, I gave him a call when that Word on Fire Bible came out because I opened it up and I said, well, I'm just gonna check what it has to say about Luke 15. And I went there and it was Rembrandt right, in the, right there on the page. And I said, hey guy, you gotta get this Bible. So that's another sales pitch for you too. <clears throat> so Rembrandt's, uh, Rembrandt's depiction here of the prodigal son, there's a few things that are very important. One, when you look at art, specifically religious art, you always wanna look for the light. Lighting in paintings is very important. You want to know, you want to see where the origin of the light, where the source is, <clears throat> and where, the, where it is going. What's the direction? So you can see here, where is the source of the light? Behind and above, it looks like. Not exactly. Not exactly. Rembrandt's intent in this painting is for the Father to be the source of the light. So the light is actually coming forth from the Father. So the further away people are from the Father, the darker they are. Uh, and I think that that's beautiful. Why? I mean, why, why is it important? Not why do I think it's beautiful. <laughs> that's subjective. Why? Why consider that the Father is the one that is the source of the light? Because the Father represents God. Okay, yeah, the Father is God in the parable, sure. What else? <clears throat> Come on, tap into those art history degrees. <laughs> So the Father is also the one who loves. And the Father is the one who brings others into him. So he is the source of the light. And those outside of him are darkness. Now, uh, let me see if I can zoom in here. Yes. Oh, that's a lot. Okay. Here's the sun. You see how his embrace, this is, this is so fantastic. The embrace is not the two of them standing up like bros. Hey man, good to see you, yeah! The son is in what posture? He's humbled himself. He's kneeling, he's humbled himself, why? Because what has the son just done? I mean, in, in, in the parable, he comes home and, and then what does he do first thing to his father? 
he, what, do you do? What, what do you do before you ask for forgiveness? You confess. And what is the posture of the confessor? On your, he is on his knees. Look at that. He is the penitent. He is on his knees before his father. And the embrace of the father is over him and enveloping him, taking him into himself. I love it. The father is dressed richly. The son is dressed... Poorly. And here's the other thing I really like. How many shoes is he wearing? Just one. The other one fell off because he ran so quickly and knelt down so fast before his father that he lost his shoe. Isn't that beautiful? And you can see his feet. You can see his ripped up, scuffed up shoes. And you can see, because he's missing his foot, the state of his feet. And the state of his feet is indicative of the state of his whole person at the moment. But he's, he's being lit up because the father's taking him into himself. Now, though, let's look at this fella. Who's that? The brother. The brother. He's the brother. Does he look happy? <laughs> uh, no. No, he does not. He is uh, disgusted. Now, I love this. How much light does the, the other brother have, the, the other son? He still has the light from the father. He's still lit. He has some of the light, but where is he coming from? The he's coming from the darkness. Look at that. So he's coming from the darkness. He's like a shadow. Like Here's his feet. Look at his feet. You can hardly even see them. They're in the dark. Look at, this. Look at his brother. Look at his feet. They're being lit up, but he's coming out of the darkness. Now, this is beautiful. And this is why I hate that it's called the prodigal son. Because there's only one prodigal son there? Which of those sons is the prodigal? Go. <laughs> well, you see, friends, <laughs> they are both prodigal sons. And the way that Rembrandt depicts it they are both being brought back to the father. Both of my sons were dead, even though one of them was still here, and now they are alive. Both of them were lost, and now they are found. Now for something completely different. What? Who are the two? Oh, who are? Back in the back. Servants. <coughs> They're servants. They are sort of inconsequential characters. So the, the real focus of this is these three. Okay, now there's this. Now this is, of course, from that Fool of Eyes artist that I like so much. This is uh, from the parable of the lost sheep. Now, you are all very smart people, and you can sort of pick up uh, what he's getting at here with a piece of art like this. Who is the one who goes after the lost sheep? The shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus. Yes. How does the good shepherd carry his sheep back? On his shoulders. Where does Christ bear all of you back to union with the Father? On the cross. You see this? 
Christ goes down into the thorns of death and takes you out. So where is the sting of death? It has none because you're not in the thorns anymore. Still see the holes in the hands too. Always, yeah. That's that's the thing. Marla Marla always asks about that, and uh, and I always use her as the example because she asks about it. But you remember that one time there was the picture of infant Jesus in the womb and his hands were already pierced. Because the point is that it's not depicting something that's chronological. Chronologically, did Jesus have pierced hands in the womb? Well, no, because the crucifixion hadn't happened yet. But theologically, how long does the crucifixion extend? Forever. Forward and backwards, infinitely. So the crucifixion is an eternal event, which means that Christ is eternally the lamb who was slain. There's, that's another reason, by the way, when Christ returns in his glorified flesh, he is not going to be healed of his wounds. His wounds are going to be there. And as Wesley writes, Charles Wesley, I think, in that hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, gaze we on those glorious scars. I heard a sermon at the seminary in chapel once that was really great. It was on All Saints, the Feast of All Saints. And the sermon was about the martyrs, and it was, it was really beautiful, actually. And uh, he talked about, the pastor talked about how <clears throat> the wounds of martyrs, the means by which they were killed, by the means by which they were slain, become, in the resurrection, the means by which they are glorified. So when you look at iconography of the church, how do you know it's John the Baptist? because he's carrying his own head in a basket. And somehow, it's not grisly. You look at it and you say, boy, praise be to God, this is beautiful. How do you recognize the saints in the resurrection, the martyrs? Because all of their wounds and their scars become things that now look glorious. Uh, the ones who were beheaded, like the, the martyrs of Libya, who were beheaded all of a sudden, you see them in the resurrection with collars of gold. Uh, any scar, any wound, you, uh, uh, Polycarp, um, St. Lawrence. He's the one I told you last week. They cooked him on a griddle, and then they said, are you going to recant? And he said, nope, I'm done on this side. You better turn me over. <sighs> You're going to see him, and he's not going to look like a flame-broiled whopper. He's going to look beautiful with the marks of the burned flesh and the griddle all of a sudden turning into flowing robes. Oh. I don't know how many times I've thought about that this week. About <laughs> turn me over? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, I, I said last week, we, I pray every Sunday, if you pay attention, that all Christians would have the strength and fortitude to be able to die as martyrs and not give up the faith. And Lawrence, St. Lawrence is always the one that I think about. There are, I mean, there are so many others, but he's always the one I think about. And, and I challenge myself and say, would you do that? Would you be able to hand yourself over to them knowing exactly what they were going to do? And then would you have the nads to say to them, turn me over? I, and frankly, if you ask me today, right now, being 100% being honest with you, I don't know if I would. Or like the prophet Isaiah. The legend of the prophet Isaiah is that he was sawn in half. 
So they stretched them out, spread eagled, and then they just put a big old two-handed saw and they just cut them in half. And you have to think, would I, would I have the strength of will and of fortitude to do that? And let me tell you something encouraging. The answer is no. By yourself. Think about the right of confirmation. What is the answer to the question, will you, re will you remain faithful even unto death? Yes, with the help of God. With the help of Jesus? No, you said it right. I just want you to say it louder. Oh, with the help of God. Yes, oh, God. with the help of God. You mean I don't, you don't stand up and say, well, by golly, I'm such a great Christian, I think I'm just going to say, doggone it, yes, I'm going to do it. Hold me to my word. Listen, friends, the Lord doesn't hold any of you to your word. Why? Because your word ain't worth a whole lot. <laughs> but he holds himself to his word, and that's worth quite a bit. So you say in the confirmation, right? Yes, I will remain faithful even unto death with the help of God. And when you read some of the accounts of the martyrs, it's like they're not in their right mind at the point where they die. It's like the Holy Spirit overshadows them. I even look at Stephen. They're stoning him, and he just looks up, and he sees, he sees the gates of heaven opening up. So I think, I think that perhaps the Lord looks out for his people. So do you have the strength? No, you don't. So get over yourselves and realize that you will have the strength with the help of God. But we'll pray it never comes to that. But I agree with you. St. Lawrence is always the one I go. I mean, I'm sort of a sassy person, but it's always safe to be sassy when you know you're not going to be put on a, a grill because of it. So, all right. Let's look at this hymn. The God of Abraham prays. Or, um, you know, the way that the text goes, the God of Abram prays. It's sort of abbreviated. Here's a fun thing about this hymn. This is a Jewish hymn. Wait a minute. We've got Jewish stuff in our hymnal? You sure do. And this is old, which uh, I actually did not know. Often I take for granted the hymns because I know them and just grew up learning them and singing them and knowing them. And I, <laughs> I take for granted that I know them. And then many of them I don't, I don't know very much about. And this was one of those. I like this hymn. I've known it forever. And never once knew that it was Jewish. So this is actually a paraphrase of a Jewish hymn called a Yigdal. Uh, and what the Yigdal means is that the Lord will be magnified forever. Um, it's, in, it's in some ways like a, a, a combination of a Jewish doxology and the Tadeum. Sort of if you combine the doxology and the Tadeum together, that would be the sense of what the Yigdal is that they sing. And they, <coughs> the Jews actually still sing the, Ying, the Yigdal in synagogues. Uh, so it's a very important hymn, very special hymn, and typically they would sing it, it for morning and for evening prayer. So you'd get together in the synagogue in the morning and you'd start the day singing this and you'd end the day singing this, which is really kind of neat. The text of the Yigdal itself is something, it's based on what's called the 13 creeds. So the Jewish faith actually does have creeds, uh, at least in some traditions of Judaism, and it's these 13 creeds, which are really more like 
statements, short statements about God. And we'll look at those in a minute because I want, I want to encourage you to think about them and see what's good about them and perhaps critique what is lacking in them. Um, the, the text of the creeds was written by a fellow named Moses, Mo, excuse me, Moses ben Maimon, who's also known as Maimonides. And this is just a, sort of an interesting thing. Maimonides lived in the um, 12th century, and he was the personal physician <laughs> of Saladin. Saladin, who was the Arab, the big-time Arab tyrant and general during the Third Crusade, who conquered the Holy Lands and who took over um, and created a large Muslim dynasty. And his personal physician was the Jew, who was notable for being a theologian, a philosopher, and a doctor. And it was that fella who he had as his personal physician. Weird, it's a small world even in the early days. Just a little historical uh, tidbit for you. Now, the text, that's just the text of the creeds, which we have on, the, on another page you can look at. But the text of the Yigdal is what another Jew took. He took the 13 creeds and he said, I think we should make a hymn out of this for us to sing. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, it ought to. How many of the hymns that we have talked about here on Sunday morning have been paraphrases of another text? You know, <clears throat> even everybody's favorite, excuse me, <clears throat> even everybody's favorite Lenten hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, everybody knows that. Well, guess what? That's actually a hymnic paraphrase of something called the Jesu Membrum Nostri, which is a large devotional poem to all the different body parts of Jesus. So there's a whole bunch of verses to the head, to the hands, to the side, to the feet, to the legs, to the ribs, all of that. And the Lutherans took a couple of those and then paraphrased them into the hymn, O Sacred Head Now, now Wounded, which is just about the head. There's an example. Here's another even more pertinent example. We all believe in one true God, which is a paraphrase of... <clears throat> well, yeah, the Nicene Creed, but, you, but it's, the, it's the creed. Yeah. yeah, so we all believe in one true God was Luther's paraphrase, hymnic paraphrase of the creed. So there you have it. This is not an unprecedented move to take something that is not specifically a liturgical text, but something that's perhaps more of a doctrinal text, and then make it into a hymn, because when you make it into a hymn, people remember it. They learn it better and they remember it. So it's easier to sing, we all believe in one true God, than it is cold to say, uh, what's all the text of the Nicene Creed, and go. And one thing that I will tell you, because I am the pastor, and the pastor hears and sees everything, whether or not you realize it, I hear a whole lot of Apostles' Creed when we confess the Nicene Creed on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and I'll tell you one little secret. I shouldn't do this. This is inside baseball. One little secret is when we do funerals and I'm up in the chancel 
and I turn around and we start confessing the Apostles' Creed, there's a whole lot of the Nicene Creed in the chancel <laughs> amidst the Apostles' Creed for some reason, I don't know. Um, so, but anyway, so you remember it better when it's set to music. And this is, a, this is a strategy that not only Christians have used, but basically any religion has set things to tunes or to chants or to melodies to make them easier for you to uh, put forth, to make it more comfortable, because it's a lot easier to sing something that has rhyme and meter than just to speak something that sort of plods along, and to work it into your brain, because your brain re remembers uh, music in a completely different memory store bank than it remembers other things. So uh, this is why somebody like Marilyn Robbins, who uh, by all accounts couldn't remember anybody when they would come to see her, still, till the day she died, remembered the text and the music of the liturgy. That you can go and start singing the Sanctus and all of a sudden she would sit up and she would sing it with you. Why? Because that music of the liturgy and its, and its accompanying text works its way down into you. And, and that, by the way, is not only a function of, of a different memory, it's also a function of faith. Because faith clings onto those things and faith will also work to recall those things where mind and, and memory of the flesh will fail. Um, which is, again, why it's so important to sing hymns with your children, especially if you're fathers. Sing the hymns. Moms, you can sing hymns till you're blue in the face, but if dad doesn't, the kids won't because the kids don't care about mom. Sorry. Uh, kids, don't, kids don't care about, about mom if, if she's the only one who does it. They've got to have fa father. When dad sings hymns, then the kids will do it. So sing hymns here. Sing hymns at home. Teach your kids the, the hymns. Uh, you know, uh, be happy when your two-year-old walks around the house going, the, the lambs I feast, we sing, playing with mermaids. That's a good thing. That's what you want. When people say, can you sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and your two-year-old says, mm, no, thank you. I'd rather sing Christ the Lord is Risen today. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, teach your kids the hymns and, and teach them the songs of the liturgy too. Sing all of that with them because that works its way down so that when I come to you or to your children on their deathbed and I start singing the liturgy, they can do it too. That all of that stuff will stick. So anyway, this is not unprecedented. Bill. Verse 11 of Psalm 46 mm -hmm. says, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, and in case that you're not catching on to what Bill is laying down, he is, uh, he is talking about the fact that a mighty fortress, the hymn, is actually a paraphrase of Psalm 46. So go through, look at the psalm, and then you look at the hymn and you go, hey, wait a minute, you mean I'm just singing the Bible? And I'll tell you, yeah, actually, most of what you sing in this hymnal is the Bible, which is why if you ever want to know what people actually believe, what their church bodies actually believe, don't ask them, just open their hymnal, because the hymnal will tell you, because the hymnal is how they look at scripture. There you go. The next time you're at a Baptist funeral and you get bored, oof, I'm sorry, that was really mean. The next time you're at a Baptist funeral, next part omitted, just take out the hymnal, if they have one there, 
and look through it. And you'll, you'll see what they really think. And, and you'll, you'll note that a lot of the times it's different than what they'll tell you that they think. And in all fairness, sometimes Christians aren't fully aware of what their church body actually believes and confesses, but the, the hymnal is, you can't, be, you can't fool the hymnal. The hymnal knows what the church body believes and will confess it. Brenda. <laughs> well, yeah, go figure. <laughs> yeah, riddle me that, Batman. All that road stuff you people do? This is why I don't like creative worship, by the way, too. There's a lot of people that mess, so you can go to some churches where the service is different every single week, and they'll change, the, they'll change confession and absolution, they'll change the creed, because they don't want you to get bored saying the creed. As if, as if you get bored saying the creed, what? And they I, Listen, yeah, yeah, I don't like that either. Here's, here's a pro tip for you all, okay? If there's something in the liturgy that you don't understand, come and ask me, and I will explain it to you, and then you will understand, because that's much better than saying, I don't understand it. Into the dumpster it goes. We'll do something else. Maintain, the church is... The liturgy is not yours. The liturgy is not mine. The liturgy is not this congregation's. The liturgy is not the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's. The liturgy is the church's. No one has the right to take it upon themselves to alter that which does not belong to him or her. Anyway, so the liturgical text of the 13 creeds is written by a fellow named Daniel ben Yehuda. Do you know what name in the English spelling is Yehuda. Not Judas, but Judah. Yeah, Daniel ben Judah. And if you know your New Testament, you know that ben means son of. So this fellow's name is Daniel, and his dad's name is Judah. So that's the way that you used to be named, is your first name was whatever name they gave you, and then your second name was son of so, <clears throat> in my case, I, am, I have a first name, and then my last name is Ferguson. Hey, see, look, it goes into English, too. I am of the son of Fergus, which in my case means I'm from the clan that was birthed from the loins of Fergus. <laughs> and we went to war with the Donaldsons. And we went to war with the McDonalds as well, and, and won. <laughs> I had a friend in college, and she was, she was a MacDougall. And she said, you're a Ferguson? And I said, yeah. And she said, I, I, I'm a MacDougall. I said, oh, cool. And she said, I don't know if we can be friends. And I said, why not? And I said, I remember reading that MacDougall and Ferguson had some kind of a clan war. And if that happened, then I, I'm afraid the blood goes pretty deep, and I can't be friends with you because we're sworn to be enemies. And I said, oh, okay, we'll go check that out. And the next day she came to class and she said, don't worry, I did my research. It turns out that Ferguson actually came to the aid of MacDougall when they were at war with the McDonald's. So not only are we friends, but we're allies. And I said, hooray, 
I don't have to bring my Claymore in to, to school today. Anyway. They thought the Hatfields and McCoys held it. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, the Scots have terrible tempers. Um, so, uh, Daniel ben Judah is the one who wrote the liturgical text, the paraphrase. And he was a Jewish poet in the 15th century. He lived in Italy. Now, the Christian hymn is written by a fellow named Thomas Olivers, who actually is sort of an interesting fellow. His very sad childhood, he was orphaned. I think he was four years old. Both his parents died. Uh, his father died first, and then his mother died within a couple months of his father. So he had some other family, and he was sent to live with relatives, and they were they just kind of didn't want him. They, they were compelled to look after him, but they didn't take care of him. So he basically was neglected all through his childhood, and that drove him, one, um, to a lack of education, because he never went to school, and two, into a life of profligate living. He was like the prodigal son. So he was, he, he, pardon me? What'd you say? He was... He was like the prodigal son. Oh, he, he led a life of profligate living. Yeah. So he was a real delinquent. And then actually, because he was a delinquent, he lost his job as an apprentice shoemaker and was exiled from the town where he lived. So he went wandering with nothing and came to this town where George Whitfield was preaching. Do you know about George Whitfield? A big sort of revivalist type guy. He would preach on the street corners and had, had such a loud booming voice that apparently people could hear him from blocks and blocks away. Sort of a big name. So he just happened to be there while George Whitfield was preaching and he heard George Whitfield preaching on this text from Zephaniah. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen G Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And he thought, I'm hearing this because the Lord has plucked me from the fire. This means I should, I should be a Christian. I need to turn around turn my life around, I need to repent. So he did. He changed his life completely. He went to be a disciple of George Whitfield, and some of George Whitfield's guys said, yeah, no, we don't want you, and you really don't want to be this guy. We're not a good fit. It's not us, it's you. And uh, <laughs> so he just kind of said, oh, okay, great. So he joined the Methodists. And then ended up meeting John Wesley. And John Wesley and Thomas Oliver became fast friends. So, such good friends they were, in fact, that, that when Thomas Oliver died, he was buried with John Wesley in John Wesley's grave. That's how, that's how good friends they were. Um, <laughs> they did a lot. Um, Wesley thought so much of Thomas Oliver that he... He put him in charge uh, as the co-editor of his magazine, his journal called Ar The Arminian Magazine. And he had that position for a while until, <laughs> until Wesley fired him. And here is why. This is from a letter that Wesley wrote. Following an astounding number of errata, I cannot, dare not, and will not suffer Thomas Olivers to murder the Arminian magazine any longer. The errata are intolerable and innumerable. They shall be so no more. <laughs> Olivers was very well-intentioned, but had no formal schooling, didn't know what he was doing, and did his darndest, but Wesley got angry with him and uh, kicked him out. So anyway, 
happened that he was in London at the, and he went to the great synagogue because Thomas Oliver spent a lot of time with the Jews because he wanted to create an interfaith dialogue between the Christians and the Jews so that they could be more united. So he went to synagogue and he heard a contra there chanting the text of the Yidga, excuse me, Yigda. And he thought it was the most beautiful thing that he had ever heard, so he asked if he could have the text, so they gave it to him, and he translated it, and then paraphrased it into the text we have in our hymnal now, known as the God of Abram Praise, and wrote a tune for it that is based on the chant tune that was used in the Jewish synagogues. So, uh, we don't have time to play what I wanted to play for you, but there are two versions here, the Sephardic and the Ashkenazic tunes to the uh, Yigdal. And the, the tune of this hymn, if you don't know it, goes like this. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Well, here. Bum, 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 bum. Da, 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 da. There's the overarching structure. Now the tune that Oliver's heard was the Ashkenazic tune. Bum 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 Hey, and that's pretty much exactly the tune that's in the hymnal with a different harmonization because he changed something that was a chant from the synagogue into something that became a Christian hymn. Now, this is the first Lutheran hymnal that this hymn has appeared in, but it has appeared regularly in every hymn from Thomas Oliver and John Wesley's time forward from the, from the Methodist and, and more evangelical traditions. And honestly, it's a very good hymn, which is... Uh, why I'm thankful that it's, that it's in the hymnal. So let's quickly look at this. 798, and I guess we won't have time to look at the 13 creeds, uh, but it's all there for you, and you can listen, or, or uh, you can read it. So here's just the... Let's sing stanza nine. The whole triumphant host Give thanks to God on high Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost They ever cry Hail Abram's God and mine I join the heavenly lays Might and majesty are thine and endless praise. All right, very good. We'll see you at the altar.